0: Hi, I'm Rajoshi Dash, and you're listening to Queerness and Storytelling in India. It's not every day that I get to interview people I look up to. Dr. Bittu K. Rajaraman is an associate professor of biology and psychology at Ashoka University. Bittu received a PhD from Harvard University in neuroscience and followed it up as the DST doctor. D.S. Kothari postdoctoral fellow at the Center of Ecological Sciences, Indian Institute of Science. He was then a DST-inspired faculty fellow at the University of Hyderabad before joining Ashoka. Bittu is a genderqueer trans man who believes in the annihilation of caste, class, and gender. Welcome, Bittu, and I must tell everyone listening that I'm, I'm extremely uh, privileged to be joined by Bittu's uh, child, so we are not alone, and I'm going to then interview uh, two people, so that's an, that's quite a bit of an honor.
1: My pleasure, yeah. <laughs>
0: I don't know if you remember, but we kind of met, I think, for the first time through Moses, Moses Tulasi.
1: Oh, really? I didn't realize that.
0: Yeah. So I think I had seen you for the first time in the documentary Walking the Walk and Moses actually... Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So Moses actually did the first episode for this podcast and... um... Oh, I see. I remember you, I we, I, we invited you at Indrupas College for Women for the screening and you were a discussant. Yeah. Um, that was in 2016, I think. And yeah, I, w- I was curious to know, firstly, how has been this kind of transition from Hyderabad to Delhi? Like, were you already in Hyderabad before uh, teaching there? Like, and what did you make of the change in terms of, activist spaces and I know we have had some conversations in the past about it but as someone who has been really trying to uh, make a community not just a community um, in person but also in social media how has been the change for you
1: right Um, well so I was never to to answer the simplest question I was now I was never in Hyderabad before uh, teaching at the University of Hyderabad Mm -hmm. i uh, I grew up in Bangalore and uh, Delhi. My first job after returning from my PhD in the US was at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore. And that's where I did a post, my postdoc. But um, then I was looking to be part of, uh, you know, I wanted to teach in, uh, you know, one of the one of the public universities in India. And, uh, you know, at the time that I got the DST Inspire Fellowship, I found a couple of friends at the University of Hyderabad who were also committed to kind of creating that kind of space. And so I went there hoping that we could build such a space there together. Mm-hmm. And anyways, we, we did that. But um, uh, in doing so, a couple of us uh, had to leave the university space because uh, after the, the, the Rohit regular struggle, Rohit was a friend of ours. After the struggle against uh, the intense fascism and uh, satirization and fascism taking over, all um, central government uh, university stations. Um, in the course of that of that fight, we were either pushed out or had to leave. So um, that after that, um, uh, this place where I currently am, a social university, um, was um, recruiting, and they recruited me. And uh, while um, initially I didn't want to move to a non-public uh, university space, I kind of realize that there was no other option at that point of time. Unfortunately, that's still the case now, that the, that the fascist project, sorry about, <laughs> bit, I told you they were going to get vocal soon. So the, the fascist project in sort of the central universities um, really took off then. And, um, you know, it's it's very systematic. So, you know, one one once one sort of not, uh, not only, I mean, the, it's not just a fascist project to sort of, ban people who are politically active against fascism or saffronization, but it's also one in which um, uh, you know, the only people being hired now uh, are people who are sanghi or who are in some way affiliated with the, or with the frontal organizations of the
0: mm-hmm. I mean, so did you, did you find, uh, like, do you find rather because you're still teaching in Ashoka to be a relatively... I don't know what's the right word, like uh, liberal, safe kind of space. Oh no,
1: not at all. I mean, uh, in the sense that uh, Ashoka is a space that that defines itself as liberal, but the project of liberalism is doomed to failure from the very beginning Mm -hmm. because liberalism has never had a strong take on on power um, and power will always, therefore, make a, a liberal space illiberal. Um, unless there is a, there is an explicit commitment to understanding power and dismantling it or working against it, which the liberal project itself does not per se have. So yeah, so I wouldn't say that any space is liberal or safe, uh, especially when there's a fascist onslaught. Um, and uh, the shift from Hyderabad to Delhi was, uh, I mean, interesting in the sense that I've never wanted to shift particularly from anywhere to anywhere else, especially. After coming to India, I think I did a lot of wandering when I was in the US, hmm. but I've always had to move because political activity happens, that's disruptive to a job, and then I've had to move. It does say something for Ashoka that I've not had to move out of Ashoka yet, um, despite sustained political activity after coming here. Uh, it's also the fact that I'm later in life, I have tenure, those things do make a difference, but uh, but yeah, I so I had to move from Hyderabad only for that reason, only if, because for political reasons. And of course, um, Hyderabad and Andhra and Telangana are all, all three very, very interesting spaces in terms of um, the history of anti-class and anti-caste um, yeah. movements. Uh, really just incredible mass levels of mobilization and dignity. And therefore, you know, people think that these are like, uh, you know, abstract struggles or struggles that one conducts in order to, I don't know, um, in, in order to sort of struggle for some abstract idea of justice, but uh, the results are not abstract at all. Like, right. Day-to-day interaction between people is so much happier and more friendly and more humane, and just, just more. Um, it's just the, you know, when, when I, when I now I'm in any place outside of, I would say Andhra and Telangana, I uh, uh, would. I just marvel at how restricted conversation even between classes is, you know. Uh, there's just a di- different degree of sort of uh, interaction and friendliness. Um, and of course, Hyderabad, with its sort of unique mix of cultures, is even more so, hands down, one of the friendliest, nicest uh, cities I've been in.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, yeah, so I think that around, I learned a lot from the anti-class struggles there. And the I mean, just the incredibly rich history of defiance of these power structures and its continued kind of uh, living uh, presence, uh, just incredible, taught me a lot. And Delhi doesn't quite have that same history, but Delhi is a power center. And because it's a power center, there's also a lot of organizing against power that happens here. It happens in uh, very sort of, in ways that are sometimes difficult in terms of feeling a sense of community. In Hyderabad, there is more of a sense of community as there is in Bangalore or really any other space. But that sense of community is also uh, more insular in some sense. And in in Delhi, there is a um, there's a lot more space for multiplicities of communities, and because it's just so large, in Hyderabad or in Bangalore, there's really a strong sense of sort of reciprocity when it comes to taking up. Uh, Issues across communities and that kind of thing, for example, doesn't quite exist in Delhi at all. There's just enough people who are comfortable taking up power even within social movements. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot more so that uh, in Delhi um, than elsewhere that that they really don't worry too much about questions of um, intersectionality, of caste or class um, or gender. So, you know, that, so yeah, Delhi is therefore a unique space, but it's also just a large space. So one will sometimes find a lot more people who one would want to organize in Delhi than in other spaces, including narratives which are marginalized, simply because of the size and the the ways in which power centers, uh, you know, act to centralize power and therefore to sharpen kind of the discourse against power.
0: Hmm. Which also, I guess, makes mobilization more difficult, I'm assuming, because Ah. of... uh, It makes it
1: difficult. Also, the, the objective circumstances are uh strong because of the centralization of power so that centralization of power really affects everybody one way or another
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's uh, it's kind of um i don't know if it's coincidental or not but in uh, my in my last uh, last episode i was talking to rajendra parihar who teaches in ramjas college mm-hmm. and um raj was saying that how uh, there is a lot of pushback uh, against the new syllabi, you know, or the recent sort of attempts to change syllabi include uh, sort of texts on caste and queer, which earlier was there, but it was not there as queer. It was not there as you know the little texts. So the naming of these texts have sort of uh, you know initiated a lot of pushback from the administration. Now I know that in Ashoka comparatively, and I know that you don't teach like liberal arts, but I I have always seen yeah. love events you know, happening, um, especially the Center for uh, Gender and Sexuality uh, does a lot of events. So do you think this kind of, does it, is it more about the image of the institution or does it actually do uh, the work that it's supposed to do, which, which could be intersectional, which could be like invested in social justice?
1: I mean, I think that uh, real intersectionality is just very much absent in many of these spaces in Delhi. And um, so, therefore, the, the agenda for social justice is also limited. But I do think it's better to have these the, these conversations rather than not having these conversations. Just I think who is doing the con- the, the conversating and how also matters. Mm-hmm. So that hopefully will change going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I always kind of marvel at the the sort of fancy uh, speakers that you know, Ashoka is able to...
1: Yeah, Ashoka is very good at that. (laughs) And it's been, and some of the speakers have been speakers who just have a really strong and incredible legacy of social justice work. For example, Spade, you know, and so it's good that their conversations and their ideas are reaching a larger audience. And one hopes that, you know, So, but but it, it also, you know, it's... It's not, I mean, it's part of what happens with international, I think, discourses around justice. So, for example, Dean Spade is an example of somebody who's an incredible um, anti-racist um, organizer against uh, for prison aboli- abolition who's worked on a, a lot of these issues and who, for example, in the context of the US would be very clear about say, only appearing on a panel where there is representation from the the marginalized communities whom he works alongside right so um but and, and of course in the context of, of a, a, dis, a similar discourse in india indians operate internationally with sort of the uh, premise of of colonialism and therefore really the representation of just indians on any panel as being uh, you know a nod to non-white voices mm-hmm. and then of course the question of which indians uh, gets invisibilized by this And so, um, yeah, the question of of, uh, intersectionality in this context disappears. Mm -hmm. And also not just intersectionality within which Indians, but also which Americans, right? So if you're going to invite one speaker to speak about racial justice, would it be a white anti-racist organizer like Dean Spade, who's white and and therefore has the privileges of being a a professor? And I'm sure this is a discourse that someone like Dean would agree with. or do you invite somebody who's a, an organizer um, on the ground who maybe, um, you know, in fact, one of the things that Dean really has done like consistently over the last several years is to center the voices of trans women of color in the US mm-hmm. who, uh, who face a very unique sort of mix of uh, marginalized identities and, and therefore incredible hostility and violence um, in that context. But the question is, in an international context, would he be invited to speak? or would they be invited to speak? And uh, so, so so the question of who represents each discourse uh, really gets um, yeah gets concentrated along lines of power when it comes to international discourse, because mm-hmm. one's inviting one speaker to talk about something, and then that speaker ends up being relatively privileged within the context they come from.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, this is what we were discussing in like the episode with Chintan uh, Modi, who's a journalist and reviews books. Yeah. And we were talking about anthologies and how most of the editors are uh, upper caste cis. Uh, so how does that change the way in which, even though they recognize their uh, privileges, but what it does to the world project of world making? If the anthology is a kind of a you know world making yeah. project. Um, yeah. And because you mentioned Spade, and by the way, my, my podcast is sort of not really meant to be an academic engagement, but I can't help <laughs> asking this to you. Yeah. Um, that because Spade is, and not just Spade, but other sort of uh, writers were invested in trans theory, queer theory, uh, they are critical of a marriage and monogamy and the rights discourse. Within that, and because you are now I don't know whether I should say officially a parent. Yeah. Uh, how do you see, what do What do you think, do you think that rights then don't matter at all? Because I remember once you told me that the sort of the struggles of, you know, legally adopting someone. Yeah. In India is very real. And at the same time, yeah. the struggles of staying together, like I, I get all the, the critiques are against uh savarna uh, you know same sex marriage projects yeah. but because it's uh, because we have a very complex relationship with religion caste race so it's not as simple as you know just like dismissing all kinds of marriages and monogamy so when okay. so how do you think it impacts your life as a parent now
1: i mean uh- in some sense, I'm a parent who parents and has parented for a while without marriage or monogamy mm-hmm. or um you know, any of the, those those uh, constructs within which one which one is supposed to parent for some reason, even though parenting is just completely separate from the question of what kind of relationship one's in. But uh, yeah, so I mean in in some sense i uh, it's not that being a parent has changed my views or on, on any of this. And you know, my views have always been very simple. it's It's not complex at all those of us who are critical of the rights-based framework are not saying one should not avail of rights. One is just calling out a rights-based framework for being limited in asking for rights within a power structure Mm -hmm. rather than questioning the power structure altogether. Mm -hmm. So availing of rights within a power structure, the struggle to say, get rights to same-sex marriage is not at all in contradiction with the larger project of dismantling marriage. it's uh, of course it, it appears to be because when one's asking for something one is asking for a position within the power structure or even demanding it but the point of the power structure is the ways in which it functions exclusively right and the call out is of saying that marriage may seem rest- uh, like a like like something that is forbidden to a queer person and therefore uh, a queer person will find uh, it a valuable struggle and a valuable victory if one wins the right to same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. But then for each person to see marriage only instrumentally uh, for themselves and to not see the larger power structure. So, uh, you know, a queer person accessing marriage does not erase all of the gendered, class, and uh, caste-endogamous sort of histories of, of, of marriage. But it does take that power structure and change it just by virtue of engaging with it, participating in it, and, and claiming that as, as its own so it's the old question of reform versus revolution um these are often posited as against each other and you have revolutionaries who are anti-reform uh, and you have reformists who are anti-revolution but i think every revolutionary uh, writer who's engaged seriously with policy and uh, i really i like for example um, lenin as an example of always consistently having done this has always advocated for reform as part of the immediate struggle, which draws people into a larger revolutionary fight. And that's just always a process of engaging with reformists, with revolutionary um, ideas and discourses, and engaging with revolutionaries to make them not sort of purists towards some abstract eventual goal, but towards actual mass organizing where reformist demands are often the reason that people first join the struggle. So I see absolutely no contradiction between the two. It depends on one's mode of organizing.
0: mm mm-hmm. I mean, I do remember that you have a daughter, right? Like, I, I remember...
1: Yeah, yeah. Several kids. By now, I have some 15 kids. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, it's, a, it's a, and now some of them have adopted. So, wow. they have kids. i become a grandparent and a great-grandparent. And it's very, very cute. Uh, <laughs> and so you are now, a
0: grandparent? Yes, did I hear it right?
1: Yes, I'm a queer family, <laughs> oh, chosen wow. family grandparent. And a great grandparent, so mm-hmm. so it's quite lovely, <laughs> and yeah, he uh, the only thing that I'd add to that is now that now that I'm parenting an infant because most of mm-hmm. the kids that i parent are, have been adults, uh, and we're raising them gender neutrally. Uh, it's a diff- it's a it's an entirely different world, entirely different uh, struggle, and yeah, all all great fun. But yeah, you were going you were going to ask me something about my daughter. My oldest is is, uh, is my is presumably whom I was talking about
0: Shivani. I was really interested in knowing like how does the dynamic work? Like I know does the law ever come in into the relationship in deciding certain or in influencing certain decisions, or is it only based uh, on a kind of reciprocity, uh, caregiving, where the law did not be. Like a restrictive uh, yeah. framework.
1: Well, with adopting my infant baby, uh, the law was played a huge role because it was a mm-hmm. "quote unquote" legal adoption. Mm-hmm. And with the other relationships, less so. But I think, in context of medical care, you know, I have some of my kids when I adopted them were minors who were uh, running away from abusive parents, and all of those contexts, uh, the law did play a role, largely restrictive. So so yes, the the law has played a role in, in some contexts.
0: So did you get any pushback from police or anybody like you know, because you were parenting minors?
1: Yeah, always. Um there's pushback from the entire system. It's understandable because there is a governmental system in place, not just you know, also for the welfare of the child in theory. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not opposed to the state to a state being involved in making sure that um, a child is taken care of by somebody who has their best interests in mind. But it's always this question of when when one's dealing with welfare functions of any state, uh, it's also a question of who is the state, whose interests do they actually represent, right. uh, and not just whose interests do they claim to represent. Mm-hmm. And what biases do they bring into how they think um, these things should happen. And so mm-hmm. clearly the queer parent is not the imagined safe parent for... Um,
2: right. So...
1: so so yeah, uh, I have had to engage with police and the state,
0: yeah. Yeah, I do, I don't I want to go into the documentary, but I do remember like a, a lot of instances around police atrocities as well, which you- Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, which I, we actually discussed that with uh, Moses uh, in the first episode. Um, but I, I'm i also like fascinated by by, Kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a cliched thing to say like multitasking. Yeah. You are pretty active, like in especially in the transgender non conforming sort of space in mm-hmm. Sonipath, Delhi. And yeah. you are a researcher, like a full time researcher. And I'm going to ask you about that a little later. Do you prioritize certain things now uh, because you have an infant, you're taking care of an infant?
1: Oh, yeah. It's changed everything. <laughs> and so I think I spent a lot of time doing stuff earlier, which I simply can't do now. And, uh, you know, Infant is going to cut cut short this call also fairly soon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're quite clear and quite demanding about their needs. So, uh, so they're, yeah, my complete first priority now. And it's made me a lot more efficient with respect to my job as well, because I think earlier I used to behave like, you know, like, I mean, in the same way that I did as a grad student, right? Which is, right. I'd sit, I'd work, I'd read, I'd, you know, uh, I would, uh, wouldn't work with a sense of, I have one hour in which to finish this, unless there was a deadline.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, I know this I'm feeling. <laughs> every,
1: every day is like this, right? Yeah. Every day is like, I have one hour in which to finish this, otherwise the baby will wake up. Yeah. Uh, I have one hour to finish this before, you know, the crash closes. or uh, uh, So, so uh, I am now always working on a deadline. Mm-hmm. Um And it has increased my efficiency hugely, not just because deadlines are good per se, I think most of it is the fact that um especially as activists and academics, we often get into cycles of unrewarded, tireless kind of overwork mm-hmm. and when we do that, it sort of the work kind of stretches out and blurs and takes over all time. We become workaholics, I think this is what I was before um, the baby and my baby now really kind of basically just insists that we must spend time just chilling and uh, playing mm-hmm. and having fun. So, uh, and I do have fun. I mean, it's incredibly rewarding, right? So mm-hmm. I first time in a long time, I really have structured rewards. Like mm-hmm. the end of the day is going to be, you know, a fun two hours, right? And so it's not just about, I. there's a deadline that I have to meet before I have to do baby care, but there's a deadline I want to meet, so that you know when I'm chilling with my baby for a couple of hours, it's going to be stress free, mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to feel like I've finished my work. And so I think I, I think the idea of structuring rewards into one's and just like rewarding happy times into one's life is something that children really mandate, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. really small ones. And um, yeah, I think that's really changed my life.
0: I mean, unrewarding labor is something that I can completely sort of, you know, yeah. identify with, and it's such an amazing sort of phrase to uh, describe a lot of the work that people yeah. do, in including including uh, my parents. Yeah. I since we have been like discussing parenthood in general, I was uh, wondering, like, does it inform your work at all? Or I know you. I know your work largely pertains to like specific, like this very specific field. And I remember even reading like one article long time back, which was, I think, which was very centered around STEM and uh, yeah. cast specifically in STEM, right, right. how that, that plays a role. So right. how, is there a way in which parenthood caste kind of intersect and how does it impact your research or right now the kind of research that you're doing?
1: Well, so I think um, all of these impact uh, the ways in which I think about what questions are and are not addressed in biology. Of course, as you say, my field in biology is somewhat removed from uh, this. I look at how we communicate. I look at how um, using insect models. I look at how we Mm -hmm. do... Mathematical cognitive tasks, but I think those feed back into my work also a lot, into my into my thinking about queerness and parenting a lot. You know, to some degree, my interest in in some of these questions of, uh, so I mean, I would say actually, to be honest, my science influences my activism a lot more than the other way around. I think Mm -hmm. activism influences a lot how I teach, but not quite as much how I do research. It does. I, I pick research projects, some research projects for, for social justice reasons. And, uh, you know, now I'm in a psychology department. So there are a lot more human social justice related projects that sort of come my way than before where I worked entirely and exclusively on animals. Um, so, so my research is influenced by my, um, by my activism. and uh, But my teaching, I think a lot more so because I really like they both feed into my into my teaching and teaching is always a political act uh, regardless of what you're teaching right so um i think that and i think the sciences are hold immense value to teach politics uh it's just incredibly sad that scientists in india typically don't do that and that's also i think a lot of that has to do with the the brahminical history of, of science in india of it not being essentially scientific but brahminical mm-hmm. um And, um, you know, the good science student is the obedient science student, the Mm -hmm. unquestioned science student, right? The the Brahmin student who kind of hugs up whatever's in their book and asks very few questions. And so that uh, that kind of, uh, I think, really impacts the and creates poor quality um, science in this country and in this context, I'd say. And so I think that... um, Therefore, how one does science is influenced by, by all of this, both in research and teaching. But I would say um, my ideas and activism are hugely influenced by what I, what I read in the literature on behavior and neuroscience as well. And that's, I think, always more urgent and pressing is, you know, the social justice work always feels more urgent and pressing than academic work. Mm-hmm. And so I think also a lot more about that, given what I've learned in psychology and neuroscience.
0: Can you give us like an example of how um, neuroscience helps you understand or at least, you know, have an impact on your activism? Because I'm so like, you know, uh, I'm not, I don't know a lot of people who are in STEM. Yeah. And yeah. So it kind of fascinates me what kind of connections can be made between right. like politics and science.
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there are not enough people doing science from that perspective. But yeah, you know, uh, so for example, if you were to tell me what you think of as a couple of the main challenges facing activists today, what would those be?
0: Uh, I would say um, lack of consensus.
1: Yeah, exactly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just incredible because I ask people across a huge variety of, of uh, political spaces what the, what the problem is, right? Why, why are we not more effective? and it's it's very rarely i mean so we're in a state of fascism right right uh, and in some sense it's easy to project the fascist as the other uh, and people could have said the problem is you know there's incredible state repression or whatever else but actually in the day like we all know that if we were all organized and if if we as activists had our uh you know uh, the right way to say if we had our you know if we had our act together, right, if mm-hmm. we were organized, we, um, we know that that would be, that would be, be, be completely different. We we have a different level of efficacy when it comes to organizing against something like if not, so. mm-hmm. I think if all of us who are involved in any kind of organizing, know that a lot of the problem with the crisis that we're facing, um, whether in trying to catch them or, or just in, 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 in more, uh, you know, day-to-day struggles around uh, justice, uh, or even a la- let alone the larger project of justice, is not outside. It's not the fascist or someone external. Uh, it's, it's a lot of the problem is within us, right? It's incre- incredibly difficult to keep together communities of people. There's mm-hmm. incredible amounts of infighting. There is just keeping together a group of four people or five people is difficult enough, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so. The consensus or decision-making across different brains and understanding how people's brains differ from one another, understanding how people intentionally or intentionally trigger one another, this very interpersonal project ends up being really core to this, the failures of democratic and community-building efforts. Mm-hmm. And that's what all activists struggle with that. We struggle less externally and more just to keep ourselves cohesive and together and on the same page internally. So neuroscience and behavior, I think, have a lot to offer in terms of an understanding of human beings as individuals, as groups. And, uh, you know, without that understanding, I think the social justice project is good. And so I really now um, think of social justice work as necessarily including an understanding of all of this. And I, um, that's, I think, really changed my own outlook on research, because for many years, I thought research was useless, right? And not useful to certainly uh, to social justice. Itself. So, yeah, that's that's my that's my sense of how
0: these two fit together. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I was also wondering, like, uh, one of the reasons that people don't often come to a consensus is because of a sense of betrayal or... Yeah you know, like uh, some kind of past histories uh, and it could be histories around desires, but yeah. it could also be a sense of betrayal, not necessarily within the community. I'm thinking of, you know, how people kind of earlier, like a couple of maybe five years back, were pretty happy with uh, the Kejriwal government right. in uh, Delhi. and And yet there were others who were noticing the kind of subtle sort of, decision-making that was happening, sort of changing. And at that time, even I have to agree that I did not, I saw the signs, but I thought maybe this is something which was that he was doing just to sustain power for a while. But then a lot changed in um, the Delhi Assembly elections. uh, And then, of course, the, uh, the Delhi pogrom in 2020. And now I wonder then how can we, like, on a politic when I'm thinking, I'm thinking of electoral politics, at that level, how can one have a consensus to, let's say, vote for a party or not to vote for a party when yeah. the options are, I don't know, like, and very limited?
1: I mean, there's no question that power will always set the agenda and the right word drift of up is the ways in which uh, it's expected that humans will react to power. But also the understanding of power on human behavior is very limited, even in the field of psychology. So that's an example of something where my academic interests are shaped by my activist interests. Um, and for us to not understand the ways in which power affects human beings, which we do at a colloquial level in the sense that we already mm-hmm. understand of this, We don't need to put academics to do this work. But for example, how do variations in power, manipulations of power, forms of anti-justice organizing, how do they compare with each other? I mean, this is what scientific socialism is, right? The question of figuring out scientifically through experiments, uh, although they're not conducted <laughs> scientifically, unfortunately, but to try and figure out how to organize against power. That is the Marxist project. And, but as I said, uh, and it's, it's posited as, as something that, that should be done scientifically by capitalism and uh, you know likewise ambedkarism um, is very scientifically positive right as uh, yeah. as something grounded in, in in principles um that that uh, demand that feudal ideas of hierarchy be put to a test right and so um so the point is just that that, that these power structures will constrain electoral options that we already know as uh, and, and that's in some sense part part of mar- Marxist canon that uh, that um, you can't have, therefore, a democracy which is liberal because because power will erode at its, at its liberalness. It will, it will make it fundamentally illiberal. Um, power, power is what creates illib- illiberalness. But the mm-hmm. problem is also power is not sort of something abstract, right? It's a, it's a thing created by human behavior also. So the emergent nature of power dynamics among people that's something we understand very little. So there's a lot of human behavior that's relevant to our understanding of how to form organized social political structures that is just not understood. And it's not understood because the large, vast number of scientists don't take on these kinds of questions, right? They take on safe questions with no implications for power. And that will also continue to be the case, given that that science is a funded enterprise often. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, one needs to find somebody who is committed to, for example uh, we often distinguish between commercially the, the science that we can put for grant applications and the science that we can't and one can subsidize the other. but one needs people who are explicitly committed to doing the kind of uh, experimental work that's necessary for social and political organizing regardless of whether it's funded and yeah. of experiments to do.
0: so mm-hmm. I don't know if for Ashoka the new uh, policy the new education policy is relevant. But I'm also kind of thinking if the new, uh, the new kind of research that's going to happen in India, whether that's going to be increasingly like uh, privatized research and not research that's going to be funded by, by the public. And right. I, I don't know, like I don't have an answer to that. Um, and especially when the public institutions themselves are being policed so much, and like you were saying, that it seems almost as if there is a little bit of more breathing space when we mm-hmm. think of like you know inviting people, you know, from either abroad or from across India, just to talk about uh, subjects which may not inter- may not be seen as, um, may not be seen as acceptable by public yeah. administration. Mm-hmm. So, have you looked at the policy? What What are you thinking about in terms of education and in India's future in education?
1: So, um, I mean, it's hard to tell what I'm um, certainly the NEP is relevant to, to Ashoka and to everything. And it is commercializing education, um, but also it's important to realize that a lot of these uh, moves which are neoliberal, play out very differently in a context like India where there's still a large feudal backdrop
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: than they would in an advanced capitalist space. So... Uh, where the where the economy is already an advanced capitalist space. And so the NEP commercializes education, but it also therefore puts some kinds of education within reach of people who have been excluded from them. Now the critique of course is that it does, it, it, it makes options accessible to people who have money. and I But I don't think one should necessarily romanticize the quote-unquote way things were, which mm-hmm. was you know, you have to get a certain quote unquote grade plus, uh, you know, in order to get into the very, very small number of government, high quality government uh, you know, seats that are available. And I don't think that um, uh, having a grade cutoff is somewhat, is, is hugely better compared to having a money cutoff because the two are correlated anyway. Uh, and when you have a grade cutoff, then you're essentially selecting for people who have pumped money often or cultural capital. Uh, or privilege, class privilege, class privilege uh, into um, into um, the applicants. So I think that one needs to just one. There's an urgent demand for much more educational opportunities than currently exist. People who are extremely poor mm-hmm. are willing to even you know uh, going to debt tempor- temporarily um, to you know to invest. Uh, money in, in education uh, because they know that this is actually something that will return, right? Uh, whereas with the deteriorating health system, for example, everybody knows that you're going to debt trying to save a family member but that there's never going to be a return to that. In the same way, except for rare circumstances when uh, you know an earning member is, uh, is sick, um, it just doesn't have the same kind of returns as education. So it's hard to tell whether the NEP will uh, have any effect on kind of of creating more options uh, or whether it will only just erode quality you know the quality of teaching the accessibility of teaching uh, and so on uh, it will probably do both it will probably saffronize and privatize a lot of education but it's important to realize that a lot of this education is already saffronized and privatized in the pub- in the private market the question then is how is it that the nep affects the public market because the private market is doing its own thing anyway Uh, and it's largely hand-in-hand with the process of the NEP. So the real question, I think, is less how is the NEP going to affect the private market than how is the NEP going to affect the public market, uh, as in the the public availability of education. Mm -hmm. And I think that those of us invested in uh, one way or another in making public education work, we have always defended, we've been better at defending Public institutions from privatization, and less good. We've been on the back foot about creating more public educational spaces, and I think we really need to do the latter because it's that lack that drives people into into wanting something like like this, right? Wanting something uh, like the ability, wanting the option to say take one year of courses rather than four mm-hmm. years of course, which will be a lot more draining on their on their on their pockets. Um, right. And so, you know, as I said, that won't affect the pub, the private education market, but it makes the private education market more accessible to somebody who may have saved money for only one year worth of fees, but not for four years worth of fees. And, and really, the alternative should be high quality, but also just more seats, more universities, more spaces in public education.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's that's an interesting thing, which I was also thinking about a diploma, which uh, which kind of gives opportunities to students to like leave the program. I, uh, I, but it's also a four-year program. So I was wondering if they're just like, you know, imitating the US model. And if so, then what, how the fees structure would kind of change? Will it re- lead to more student debt, for instance? Because as far as the social sciences, and I don't know much about uh, the STEM, but as far as the social sciences and humanities are concerned, uh, the fees are not that high when it comes to public institutions it's kind exactly. of affordable uh one can take like a small uh even if you need a loan it can be like repaid but that's not the case when it comes to like medical seats or you know these uh that's engineering right. states like and and that's why people go to private institutions you know because yeah. they know like you said there's a return you know and they don't necessarily yes. see perhaps the return with regard to social sciences which of course gives right. you a return you know, which perhaps is not like monetized in the same way um, and therefore not yeah. <laughs> appreciated.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, again, like a place like Ashoka already has a four-year program, right? Because right. it's clear that it's uh, preparing students for the, for the American kind of PhD market. And, and this would be in place of an American degree, which would be a four-year degree. So again, the NEP doesn't, it goes along with, as I said, the private market rather than changing the private market. Mm-hmm. And it just, the only thing it does is it makes, say, one year uh, in one of these institutions and a possibility when the institution would otherwise have held out for four years worth of fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there is a, a resistance, for example, and an understandable resistance from government uh, uh, institutions uh, and even some teachers who oppose the NEP are opposed to the four-year program as opposed, you know, compared to the three-year program. And, the, of course, there's a they say we shouldn't change based on just copying sort of the program structure in say the US, but uh, and it's it's true. But the point is that anything that makes the government uh, degree relatively uncompetitive in the global market compared to uh, private degrees is also going to aid privatization. So some degree of adapting to the ways in which globalization changes the world, so that. The, uh, the, the public university is competitive so that people who, who are in public universities are not suffering compared to people who are in private universities. That is, a, is sort of a tactical change that should always be considered. Right? It's like this question of English that we shouldn't have to teach students in India English just because India, English is now a global language. Um, we shouldn't. We should be clear that that is an imposition. It's a colonial imposition. But if one doesn't do that, it's only rich people in India who are accessing India uh, English as a language, mm. and then within India, you just don't have equivalent access for people who are not taught English because we are, you know, resisting this form of colonialism, and so and of course, then there are always dynamics about uh, local uh, la- about Hindi domination or about uh, languages which are local to different parts of India not being weighted uh, equivalently um, as an alternative to English. So, um, so yeah important to to bear all of these
0: in mind. Yeah I think that's a that's a great note to uh, conclude our conversation and I actually wanted to ask you a little more about trans feminism and queer feminism and its influence on your work but I know this that this is such a huge favor that you did given the kind of childcare needs. I'm a
1: little worried because I haven't heard my kid for a while. I think my partner's taken them into another
0: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I was wondering like I was wondering what <laughs> did you do?
1: Yeah, at one point when they were like competing with me vocally, I think my partner just took them away. I just want to make sure those two are okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, and yeah, I'll send you an audio, the audio version uh, once I edit it, and then maybe you can okay it.
1: Lovely, lovely. Or
0: let me know if you if there are any changes that need to be done.
1: Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah.
0: See you in Delhi soon. Bye bye.
1: Soon I hope. Bye.